Although climate change has so far been treated as an external, technical, physical problem that almost like came about by accident, what we found in our research is that the mind is a driver of the crisis in the first place. And this stems from our inability to see the connections in our world. It's just a lack of understanding of interdependency. So fundamentally, the climate crisis is a relationship crisis. The relationship crisis is that we are disconnected from self, from others, from nature. And this can be solved by reconnecting. And that mindfulness and compassion can act as powerful enablers of reconnection. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Today I'm speaking with mindfulness policy advocate and Buddhist teacher, Jamie Bristow. Jamie is the co-director of the Mindfulness Initiative, an organization based in the UK that bridges contemplative practice and public policy, lifting up the inner dimension of social change. Over the past few years, I've read several of the Mindfulness Initiative's policy reports, which are really impressive, by the way. They're thorough and accessible summaries of contemplative research, along with why and how these practices can be helpful. But I'd never gotten to meet Jamie, so I was really happy to be able to chat with him earlier this fall. We begin with his story, why he first started meditating, his previous career in advertising, which interestingly becomes relevant in different ways, given his current direction, and his growing commitment to climate work. Then Jamie shares some fascinating history of mindfulness within the UK government and how this spurred the development of the Mindfulness Initiative. He talks about the nuts and bolts of mindful policy work and shares some recent wins, policy advances in the UK in health, criminal justice, and education. He also describes how he's come to see mindfulness as a foundational human capacity, not just a skill that you can learn, which I found a really interesting and useful perspective. And this gets us into the Mindfulness Initiative's current work, on how the mind relates to the climate crisis. Jamie reflects on the consequences of our failure to see interconnectedness in the world and how mindfulness and compassion can help with reconnection. Along the way, we take an interesting dive into understanding two modes of mind, two ways we can operate in the world, and the role of mindfulness in regulating those modes. And Jamie ends with some thoughts on where we can go from here in terms of policy and really shining a light on the importance of this inner dimension of change. This is the first time we've had someone on the show who's working to integrate contemplative practices at a national level in government settings, which I think shows just how far this field has evolved. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think Jamie's articulation of how our mindset both underpins and is also the solution to so many of our major challenges in the world is just about the most important message that can be shared. It's really what this show is all about, actually. So I encourage you to check out the links in the show notes to the work of the Mindfulness Initiative and take some time to read their latest report. It's called Reconnection, Meeting the Climate Crisis Inside Out. And this episode marks the end of our fifth season. So we'll be taking a few months off of releasing shows to work on new episodes. In the meantime, stay tuned to all of Mind and Life's various channels for more wisdom from the heart of contemplative science. And we'll be back in your feeds very soon. 
And thank you all so much for listening and engaging with the show and sharing it. It's so wonderful to see how the audience is growing. Okay, with that, it is my great pleasure to share with you Jamie Bristow. All right, well, it is my pleasure to welcome Jamie Bristow to the show today. Thanks so much, Jamie, for being here. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Wendy. Yeah, it really is. I always love to start with people's personal stories and backgrounds and understanding a little bit of how they got into this work. So for you, how did you come to the contemplative space and then also moving into policy work? Well, I was lucky enough to be taught to meditate when I was about 18, 19, at the beginning of my uh, university life. And, in, and you know, it was, it was one of those student societies that you join in the first weeks of college where your enthusiasm outstrips probably your capacity to keep stuff up. So <laughs> it was just one of those things I, uh, I checked out and it, you know, it blew my mind really that I could close my eyes and have a significant effect over my experience in that moment and, and for hours afterwards. But, you know, like many other you know, teenagers or <laughs> students, I, um, had lots of other things to distract me. So it didn't really didn't really make it a central sort of part of my life until I found myself a few years later a graduate executive in the advertising industry and uh, I was still sort of like binging on Buddhism I think is what, what 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 I called it, you know, kind of doing a little bit of meditation, reading a book here and there and then forgetting about it for 6 months. But I really committed to it when I wanted something in particular. You know, I, I wanted a self-regulation benefit, as the researchers sometimes call it. Quite honestly, I wanted to concentrate for longer hours to sit at my desk to be a better advertiser, make cooler adverts and sell more stuff. Um, and in fact, I was working on like, uh, working for Nissan or Nissan, as, as I think you say in North America. Yeah, like in making adverts for SUVs, not thinking that was a problem at all. Oh, wow. And we'll come to later on, I guess, about why now I think that is a problem. But <laughs> yeah, interesting. Um, but yeah, so so I got that self-regulation benefit and then got a whole lot more besides, you know, exploring my own heart and mind and my own role in the world. And in fact, decided that advertising wasn't right for me. It wasn't right for the world. But that's uh, that's later on in the story. So, so yeah, lucky enough to to really commit to it at that point. And and quite soon it became almost the most important thing in my life. And now, well, certainly for the last sort of 13 years or so, it's been hugely important. And I've you know, trained to become a, a Buddhist teacher, a Dharma teacher, a mindfulness teacher. And I've made you know, mindfulness and the secular scientific application of contemplative practices my professional life now for eight or nine years. So how did you get from advertising to policy work and the work at the Mindfulness Initiative that you do now? Well, you know, this, this sort of somewhat still nascent mindfulness practice um, meant that the same information I'd heard many times about sustainability, the climate crisis, landed in a different way. So with greater awareness and sensitivity and this sort of courage to turn towards the difficult, as is often said on mindfulness courses, I looked at the evidence and realized that my, my work was ethically unsustainable. Within a couple of years, I had uh, quit my job and started volunteering for a climate change campaign. Mm. And then I, like many people, had a really eye-opening experience 
about quite what we're up against in terms of the denial, repression, and other kind of psychological barriers to to you know collective action on this on this predicament. And it was yeah, it's quite it's quite overwhelming. It, it's it's quite disheartening. And I realized that what I was doing, just telling more people the facts about what was happening, wasn't going to shift the dial. And I, I, I looked at my own life and I thought, why did, why did I you know, start giving a damn? And of course, you know, as, as I've mentioned, I, I credited my mindfulness practice. And it was at that point that I was like, well, you know, maybe this is a missing piece. Mm. It seems people are completely ignoring this inner dimension. It's all treated like an external, physical, technical problem. Right. But yet for me, it was a psychological shift that led to a sort of, you know, radical change in behavior and profession. So, so maybe I should work on this potentially missing piece. Um, but, back, but back then, you know, there was no working, you know, mindfulness was still, you know, weird as hell. Yeah. Meditation was uh, esoteric and, and, uh, and taboo. So you couldn't, uh, in the climate world, you know, go straight for that, you know, 12 years ago. So, um, so I started off just thinking, well, how do I spread the word? How do I get, you know, more meditation into more people's lives? And um, it was at that time, like Headspace was like really, um, you know, the, the, the meditation app was, yes. was really kicking off. So I, I turned up to their offices essentially and said, hey, I love what you do. Give me a job. And I spent the uh, best part of a couple of years with them. And through that was invited to start contributing to a new initiative in the British Parliament. Mm. So since 2013, members of the House of Lords, members of the House of Commons had been learning mindfulness on an, on an eight-week course modelled around the kind of, you know, the, the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course that is, has been available on our National Health Service actually since 2004. That's pretty amazing in and of itself yeah. that members of parliament were, and, you know, politicians were practicing mindfulness. Do you know how that began? Yeah, so it was a member of parliament uh, called Chris Ruan who had been practicing himself for some years and he invited the Oxford University Mindfulness Centre to come and, you know, introduce it to his colleagues. Oh. And you know, on that first course, there was about 22 politicians and they said, hey, no, look, yeah, okay, I, I, get, I get it, Chris, this could be helpful to me, but don't tell anyone that I'm going to, you know, going to come. Like, it was still super weird and risky for them, uh -huh. for them to do, right? Fast forward a few years later, and we've had 400 members of parliament and members of the House of Lords, our upper house, take some kind of mindfulness training. Amazing. And out of that, personal practice became an interest in the science behind what they've been experiencing. And, you know, like many of us, we think, oh, you know, more people should know about this. How do I share it? Like, you know, and for politicians, the obvious way to share it is through public policy. You know, looking at how this could be applied better in health and education, etc. And that's where I came in, along with a number of other volunteers and experts um, to support those politicians who have been practicing themselves to form uh, an all-party parliamentary group on mindfulness. It's like a student society for backbench MPs. You know, there are scores and scores of these um, all-party parliamentary groups, but many of them do like really quite impactful work. So you come together on a, on a cross-party basis to inquire into an, an area of mutual interest and make recommendations for government and then go and lobby ministers as, you know, as backbenchers yeah. um, to, to enact that, the, the changes you want to see. So, yeah, we help them to form a group like that and we help them to conduct a, an inquiry into how mindfulness training could be better applied in health, education, criminal justice and, and the workplace. 
and produced the world's first public policy report about this called Mindful Nation UK. Mm. And, and that was really the kind of kicking off point for um, the the Mindfulness Initiative, which is this organisation that, that was the name given to this group of experts and, and uh, volunteers, but has since become a, you know, a, a registered charity and a policy institute working on a whole range of issues uh, around the world with many different parliaments now. Wow, that is fascinating. So does the work of the Mindfulness Initiative now, you said it was mainly in response to a desire from these politicians to know the science behind it. So is it primarily like a translating science, compiling the research that's known, and then making recommendations on that, or just giving the information? And you say a little bit more about the process that you guys go through? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of it. So a policy institute might otherwise be called a think tank. In fact, it's quite trendy to, to be called think and do tanks now because you're not just writing reports, but you might be having initiatives. And and my joke often is that, you know, being mindfulness, we're a think and do and be tank. Yes. Um, right. So we get politicians together to actually not necessarily get involved in the intellectual side or the doing side, but spend a day on the being side before we get into that, you know. Nice. So, yes, it started off being, you know, let's have a look at the evidence. And then out of that, it was like, okay, well, there's strong enough evidence to really recommend this uh, as an alternative to antidepressants, for instance, um, which many policymakers are worried about the over-prescription of. So what we did in that, in those, we had, I think it was 10 or so inquiries back in 2014 in these different four different policy areas. And we had professors come in to give presentations on the science and did our own you know summary of the of the, of the research that's one part of it for sure then we combine that with the existing public policy landscape like what what are ministers and policymakers and advisors currently worried about like what are their current policies and 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 how would mindfulness training be applied within within that world what's realistic and that's the second thing and the third thing is kind of the state of implementation or the state of innovation in the field. So it's really keeping your ear to the ground or mapping the sector, understanding who's teaching what, where, um, what, what the needs are in the sector. Now, if, we, if it's no good us going to government and say, hey, we need to train 2,000 mindfulness teachers within the next year, if there's no way that's physically possible because there isn't the teacher training capacity, which was one of the issues back in 2014. You know, we had to look at... You know, what the capacity was to, to meet some of these societal needs. Right, right. That's also fascinating. And it's, I admit, it's kind of a new world for me to think about. Uh, we don't really have any policy initiative like that in the United States. So it's not, it's not something I'm familiar with the inner workings of. So it's really fascinating to talk to you about this. And I know the UK has done a number of larger rollouts, right? Like in schools, and like you said, maybe policies in health. And really, it to my knowledge, is the only place in the world that's done that at a governmental level. Do you know of any other places? Well, that's what we've been working on, supporting other countries to, to do something similar. Um, but firstly, yeah, there is there was something, uh, the conditions came together in the UK, I think. And when John Kabat-Zinn came over to the UK to support us in a couple of events in 2017, I remember him saying, like, nowhere else in the world is there the 
superstructures and the undergirding of the mindfulness sector like there is in the, the United Kingdom. Right. And part of that is due to the leadership of people like Professor Mark Williams, who's kind of like the British John Kabat-Zinn, I guess you could say, the kind of rather than the godfather of mindfulness, he's kind of like the uncle of mindfulness or something. <laughs> and the role of Oxford University uh, and the role of our National Health Service officially um, reviewing the evidence, like I say, back in 2004 and deciding that this is, you know, gold set standard stuff that can be... 2004. 2004, yeah. And that could be applied using public funds wow. um, for the treatment of recurrent depression. So that gave it a kind of stamp of approval that made it a safe, credible thing and, and, and helped us, for instance, in Parliament. If you say, hey, this is Oxford delivering it and it's been available anyway for 10 years on the National Health Service, you, you're slightly more reassured that you're not going to get pilloried in the press for being associated with it, although they still did have concerns at the time. So yeah, there was something that happened in the in the UK and there's a level of kind of coordination between the different research and training centres and we have, you know, a, a national association of mindfulness-based approaches and that's all been very helpful. And in fact, the mindfulness initiative and the work that it did to kind of represent the sector to policymakers and decision makers in different different areas of public life did give it a kind of focal point for everyone to come together and 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 to be collaborative and and we had yeah we saw kind of a halo effect field building halo effect around our policy inquiries and the work that we did I definitely want to get into the climate work that is kind of the latest uh, work of the Mindfulness Initiative. But I'm curious for you personally, with your advertising background, it's fascinating to me how you must really be able to use some of those skills like in a much more healthy and skillful way. You're still in a role of translating information and kind of... Um, I don't know if it's in a way trying to convince people. I mean, mm. that's what policy and politics is about. So I'm just curious your thoughts on how your own background and experience in the advertising world mm. comes into play in the work that you're doing now in a maybe like healthy way. Right? Yeah, it's a lovely question. I mean, I, I did a, I did a, like a careers questionnaire at, at, at some point post my advertising life, actually. But like it came up saying is like excels at communicating intangibles or like selling intangibles or something. So I guess ah. in advertising, you're kind of selling like hope and status and optimism or whatever via via the buying of a, of a, a new car or something, right? Yeah. So although it is a physical thing, really, what you're doing is selling selling an intangible like lifestyle. And for sure, I mean, particularly in the early years of doing this work, first at Headspace, I was like going into to corporates as part of my role. You know, this is really early in those days, going into Google or Harvard mm -hmm. or, yeah, so that, that felt like a part of it. But certainly talking to politicians and policymakers like telling them a good story about what this is and why why it's important trumps a big stack of evidence it's the case for almost all policy making right you know the world is made of stories and we think in stories and although we you know we, we like to pretend it's not you know so yeah i think that's all been really helpful and and i often describe myself as a kind of uh, poacher turned gamekeeper you know, like from, from being the black knight of consumerism to trying to, um, yeah, get people to switch away from gas guzzling four by fours. <laughs> yeah. 
That's a wonderful transformation. So yeah, I love this um, unique skill of selling intangibles. I think it's actually so essential in the world um, today. So gratitude to you for bringing this work um, into this space. And so before we get into talking about climate in particular, just writ large the work of the Mindfulness Initiative so far, what are some of the policies or successes that, that you all have seen? Well, that Mindful Nation UK report that we published in 2015 had a bunch of recommendations. And gratifyingly, in, in, in some areas, we've, we've seen most of those acted upon, particularly in health, um, in the area of criminal justice. And the British Department for Education put money into researching mindfulness in schools, for instance. So that was great. And, and we went on from there to inquire into more varied and nuanced areas like older people and aging well, uh, mindfulness and um, uh, blue light services, you know, like emergency uh, services and frontline staff. And a lot of these, um, the outputs from these in inquiries uh, and briefing papers that we've created for, for ministers over the years are available on our website. So that original report and everything we've done since then are, you know, are available on, on the publications section of our website. And then sort of beyond the public policy development, we've seen great successes in giving politicians a kind of place to hang out where they can talk about the impact of their mindfulness practice, not just on themselves, but on the political process itself. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. And so, for instance, you know, we had, um, having helped to introduce mindfulness in 10 other national parliaments, so like Australia, Canada, France, the Netherlands, um, and in some cases, seen that to you know, really grow and flourish. We we pulled together forty politicians from fourteen countries into into the British Parliament. Had a day of practice with John Kabat-Zinn and others. And uh, in the years since then, politicians have become more and more visionary about how they think this could be like fundamental. Like developing these these foundational capacities of heart and mind would change how politics is done. And they, they talk about um, how mindfulness helps them to disagree better. Like they're not going to be necessarily any less ideolo ideological or necessarily agree on, the, on, on, on policy ideas, but at least they can have a more productive discourse. And we've seen demonstration of that in the debating chamber where people have like called for, stood up and called for calm. And the Speaker of the House of Commons, the guy who runs the show, you know, commenting on one particular politician saying he's obviously a beneficiary of mindfulness he's a much more calm and phlegmatic fellow these days which we're very grateful for you know so yeah we're seeing some you know sort of green shoots i guess it's been a long time coming and but these are baby steps but yeah there could could well be there's reason for for, for hope that if this was invested in and developed as well as all the other areas of society like the media and, and others that also need to take them you know practice a little bit or something um then then yeah it could be could be really transformative yeah that's fantastic i mean yeah politics is of course one of the most important and influential spaces that that shape our entire world so yeah you mentioned you know that actually your initial interest in this whole space was related to the climate crisis and, and issues around that. But um, as you said, of course, it was at that time not really uh, able to be woven together, but but now it's starting to be by the Mindfulness Initiative. So do you want to talk about how that became possible, like on your radar as that group? Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe we can dig into some of the, some of the report that you all have presented. Sure. So, 
you know, we, we published a report recently, which is really kind of like five years in development. Because we started out seeing that we were missing the wood from the trees somehow. That we were only really able to talk about the application of mindfulness and compassion training, which is increasingly part of our interest, where a minister had a particular problem that they wanted to fix. you know, And mindfulness happened to have the evidence base, which would recommend it to, to address that. And this kind of reflects the kind of fragmented evidence base for mindfulness and the fragmented way that policy making is done and in fact the way in which mindfulness is sometimes described as being helpful for uh, anxiety or depression or attention regulation it can feel like it's a it's a bit all over the place and some people use that as a way to dismiss it it's like oh it must be a panacea they're they're over promising and applying to all these different things Rather than the myriad applications and different types of, of evidence being a reason to dismiss it, instead it points to it being a foundational capacity which affects everything that we do. Right. So we can have these outcomes in all these different spaces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we haven't been talking about it, like that foundational capacity. We're sort of like led by the evidence building led by the particularly the, the clinical path that it came into mainstream society, which looked at individual outcomes, because that's where the, the funding for research was, or that's the easiest thing to measure. And we were kind of missing, there's a missing middle of the why of mindfulness, uh, we sometimes say. So if you, if you say, like, oh, mindfulness is going to increase our intention regulation by 20%, or reduce our anxiety by 16%, or whatever, Critics will say, oh, that's, that's like the weak balm of self-improvement, or that's like superficial, nice but superficial. Mm. But then, like, that's not where this started. Well, I mean, John Kabat-Zinn in his books and others, you know, have, have always said that this is, there's a bigger, bigger picture here, linking up individual yeah. health and planetary health. And uh, in one of his papers, John said that mindfulness will be a catalyzing force to lead to a global renaissance, you know. Mm-hmm, and these are like these right. grand pictures, grand claims. They get dismissed as like magical thinking and like utopian woo-woo stuff, right? And what we're missing is a kind of something in the middle which links up these uh, somewhat siloed benefits and this bigger vision that we sort of practitioners and teachers and advocates sort of intuitively feel is a potential. And I got the sense, actually, I was inspired by one of our politicians to, to try and find the story which makes sense of this sort of foundational capacity, where in an event that we held around 2016 on mindfulness and, and social change, he said that he sees mindfulness as a foundational proposition beyond the applications in terms of health. What he means there is a, is a kind of enabling factor in a whole range of policy interventions, even ones that look at, say, social deprivation or the, the, how citizens engage with their communities and with the state, etc., I was like, wow, that's actually pretty visionary there. He's, he's seeing this as a foundational, like a, the lubrication in a system or, or like something that's an enabling factor. And yeah, he's absolutely right. So what's, what's the story that's going to make sense of this? And how can we robustly, as we can, review the evidence and pull it together into a framework so this isn't just a kind of magical thinking story, but actually feels like something we can hang policy recommendations on um, and give people really strong reason to believe. So we started this work looking at mindfulness in particular and its potential to meet the crises of our world most broadly. So this is what we call the meta-crisis 
or you know, some people have called it the permacrisis or the polycrisis. You know, this is the way in which our democratic deficit, our de democratic crisis, our economic crises, our social and environmental, all interleave with each other and, and, and are kind of really part of the same problem, which could be summed up as our inability to handle the complexity of the world that we've created. And we as individuals in the societies just need to become a lot more complex and handle that complexity a bit, a bit better. And of course, inner capacities, capacities of heart and mind are part of us individually and collectively being able to handle that complexity better. And so we created a story because, you know, as I said, the world is made of stories and we pulled together a framework at the center of it. And we published this in a document called uh, Mindfulness Developing Agency in Urgent Times to really counter that idea that mindfulness is somehow passive or um, it's just about rest and relaxation or, or something. But actually saying that actually it helps you to live more of the time on purpose, to be more attuned with your inner compass, um, to be able to act with others, to be able to perceive things more clearly, understand things better and to act yeah, with, with clarity and purpose. So, so that was the kind of really the, the foundation step that took us from the policy work that was more about specific things that we can recommend right now to this more visionary think tank long-term stuff. And then it was finally time, like you say, <laughs> for me to be able to work on the thing that's been motivating me this whole time. Right. Yeah. So rather than looking at mindfulness in particular, we broadened it at that point to look at mindfulness and compassion training because I felt that through that previous work, you know, in our definition of mindfulness, there is care, there is kindness and compassion increasingly taught as part of mindfulness training programs. And I was always rolling that into the concept of mindfulness, but I felt like the time is right. And actually, you know, amongst politicians and policymakers, I could now use that C word without turning them off and we can you know it, had, it was a problem initially but now we can bring it out and put it side by side and say right we've got mindfulness and compassion training together and one you know most commonly one includes the other you know they're just sort of different slightly different emphases rather than being very different things and so we broadened it to the next phase of our work to include compassion and rather than looking at the meta crisis in general we we're like right let's let's hone down and look at the climate crisis in particular perhaps our most pressing existential threat and yeah we conducted a research partnership with a leading sustainability sciences professor who i believe is a fellow of mind and life professor christine vamsler at the lund university center for sustainability studies and together we set out to create a policy report which could help put the inner dimension of the climate crisis into the frame in policy thinking and then with that position mindfulness and compassion training as two of the leading most evidence-based ways in which we might be able to intervene and develop the, these sort of capacities that make such a big difference. Yeah. Well, let's just spend a moment maybe talking about uh, in the beginning of your report, it kind of lays out these issues around disconnection and how we have these multiple levels of disconnection that's part of our worldview and mindset around separation and things like that, and mm -hmm. that that's what's enabled and facilitated this crisis. So maybe we could unpack that a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Having learned the importance of framing and, and, and stories, it was really important for us to find a kind of clean and clear way to summarize the issue at hand and particularly the way in which the mind is a driver of the crisis in the first place. 
So what we found in our research is that um, politicians, policymakers are very familiar with, uh, although increasingly familiar with, the, how the mind is a victim of the climate crisis, mm-hmm. you know, particularly amongst young people. Can you say more about that a little bit? Well, eco-anxiety, as it's now called, the word is starting to be thrown around quite commonly. Eco-grief, depression, uh, overwhelm, stress are starting to be evidenced and a serious drag factor on the mental health and the well-being of people around the world. And it becomes a barrier in itself, a barrier to action, because people actually you know, don't become more engaged, it seems. They can become less engaged, their head in the sand. So that's the first uh, and the most commonly understood sort of way in which the mind and climate change interact and in the dimension of the crisis, you might, you, might, you might describe it as. The second one that sort of environmental psychologists or climate psychologists are getting increasingly clear on is that the mind is a barrier to climate action. So this is, you know, we repress emotions, we deny the facts, we have a future discounting bias, uh, confirmation bias, all of these heuristics that served us well on the savannah, but now are basically making it very hard to, to act in our collective best interests. So, so yeah, a mind is a victim, mind is a barrier to action. And the third one is that the mind is basically the cause of the issue in the first place. And this is much harder for, for politicians to, or policymakers to, to, to see, or, or rather less, less common, but it's starting to get there. And that is, although climate change has so far been treated as an external, technical, physical problem that almost like came about by accident somehow. Oh, we, oh we've got this issue and we found it's, found it's happening, you know. Which you, I suppose you could treat it back at, like, like that back in 1970 when the scientists first started ringing alarm bells. But now, sort of 50 years later, it's so manifestly not a technical issue. Otherwise, you know... We've we've got the evidence. We know what to do about it. We have the policy instruments, and now we're seeing that it's really just a symptom of a wider problem, and it's only one symptom. We also have all these other ecological planetary boundaries that are, that have been transgressed or or are about to be, so ecosystem collapse, you know, loss of biodiversity, um, erosion of soils. You know, we've got ten years of harvest left or something like that. Plastic in the ocean, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and. This stems from our mindset and our inability to see the connections in our world and to feel those connections. You know, we are insensitive, we are insensible to the harm that we create on the other side of the planet. We're just not connected to it. We're not connected to the harm that we're doing to others as a, as a result, other forms of life, other people. And part of this lack of care and lack of awareness stems from a basic lack of connection to nature. And this interrelates with a lack of actually connection to ourselves. That there has been a way of seeing ourselves, a way of seeing the world, that has created a society that has reinforced that disconnection. So this goes right way back to like the Greeks. Like Greek philosophy, Judeo-Christian ideas, to contrast with actually some of the some of the ancient ideas in the in the east and it's not you know talking about east west now isn't appropriate because we're all kind of modernist thinkers and probably we're all actually quite separated in our in our thinking separated from our from our own bodies separated from our emotions separated from our deeper values so this stuff goes really way back and one element of it for instance is that we tend to, in Western thought, think of our human beings at the top of a pyramid of power in dominion over nature, given you know, nature given to us to sort of to somewhat be in dominion over and, and exploit. 
Whereas in some of the Eastern philosophies, it was, uh, you know, humans are enmeshed in a harmonic web of life where every action has, an, has a, you know, a ripple effect through the chain of, of relationships, etc., etc. And in many indigenous cultures around the world, yeah. Exactly. And even in you know, Britain, North America, some of these places that are now bastions of individualists and separate thinking, actually, the indigenous culture was sort of had it right first time. So that's what we mean by the separation that we have in our mindset, the physical separation from each other, from nature and from ourselves, underpins a mindset, a way of being in the world and behavior, which have ultimately led us to treat our only home like a trash can and to not even be connected to future generations. You know, it's just a lack of understanding fundamentally of interdependency of what teacher Thich Nhat Hanh calls in, into being. And we, we did um, this research, Christine Vamsler and I, uh, talking to policymakers and politicians um, in these sort of semi-structured interviews. And we also did a large consultation survey uh, of about 100 experts working at the intersection between inner and outer sustainability. And we asked them all, if you talk about an intervention of the climate crisis, what do you say? And we found that you almost had 100 different answers um, and this is a problem because policymakers will, for them, it'll just be like noise, a bit cacophonous. Everyone has their own different way of talking about consciousness or, or mindfulness or, or, or you know, into being or, or whatever it is, all of which are part of the picture. But it's difficult if we're not all singing from the same hymn sheet to cut through. But the one narrative that we did see coming through and, and we felt was most helpful to be able to say what we wanted to say was this narrative about fundamentally we have a climate crisis as a relationship crisis. The relationship crisis is that we are disconnected from self, from others, from, from nature. And this can be solved by reconnecting. And that mindfulness and compassion, this is where we come in, mindfulness and compassion can act as powerful you know, enablers of connection. They have throughout human history been foundational capacities for connection. And particularly in this time, they will help us stay connected in spite of the great difficulty it is of like you know being aware of what we've what we've done and what we're doing to help us shift that mindset towards one of of interdependence and to connect with each other and connect to our compass and connect action in, and, and intention so that's, that's essentially where we got to with our narrative That's wonderful. That was really so beautifully said. Um, thank you for sharing that in such a clear way. Would you like to dig into some of the research and pull apart a little bit the ways that mindfulness and compassion can help us with this reconnection? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we had these two chapters in our report. The first is the way in which connection has been important throughout human history in all times, and then the way in which it's super important right now. In that first chapter, we split it into capacities of mind, then capacities of mind-body, and then capacities of mind-body-heart, because uh, we had to talk about these things linearly, even though they're not linear, et cetera, et cetera, you know, completely interdependent faculties, but we kind of layered them up in that way. So within the first section on mind, we look at the foundational role of attention regulation, like how 
our attention faculties like render our world for us. They 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 pull together, bind together all of our other you know, cognitive and emotional faculties, and and yeah, what we pay attention to is our world. And if we're not paying attention to a problem, how can we solve it? So we look at the way that attention is always foundational, and the way in which it is increasingly being undermined, the way in which that regulation capacity is underdeveloped and undermined now because of you know digital media social media, and actually social media is just the latest assault in what's been a sort of a two or three hundred year assault on our attentional faculties by um, the attention merchants, as they've been described. So we start there, and, and then we obviously frame mindfulness as, as, a, as a potential uh, enabler of regulation. But then we go on to look at how mindfulness isn't just about attention and regulation. Actually, it's a capacity for awareness of a particular quality, and that is awareness that is open, allowing, curious, and kind. And we look at how those attitudinal foundations work together to broaden the bandwidth of perception, to enable us to be more receptive, particularly to new and challenging information, which obviously in the context of the climate crisis is absolutely fundamental, because our collective sticking heads in the sand is probably what's most you know, dragged us back uh, 30 years in terms of action. And then we look at um, the evidence for uh, the importance of uh, not just attending and broadening awareness, but learning how to take new and different perspectives on things, including new and different perspectives on our thoughts and then cognitive faculties. So we bring in that cognitive flexibility and, and, and perspective taking. So in each of these sort of sections, subsections, we first of all frame why this is important in the dimension of the crisis and then towards the end say, and here, here are the reasons why mindfulness and or compassion have evidence to meet this, or you know, underpin this faculty. Yeah. So we move on from that into the body. And first of all, we say, you know, we labour the point that um, we now understand ourselves, our bodies not as just vehicles that take our heads from meeting to meeting, um, but instead we are, you know, emotional, extended, embodied cognizers. And that actually, it's hugely important to connect with the body. For instance, our inner compass, our empathy. You know, we actually listen to our own bodies rather than, directly perceive the emotions of others and if we haven't got body awareness actually we struggle to empathize you know that kind of thing we we look at and then we go on to look at um, the threat response system and you know what is climate the climate crisis now apart from one whopping great threat and how that threat is dealt with by individuals groups and society will have a lot to do with what state our nervous system is in like will it trigger fight flight freeze or will we be able to maintain an approach state that is required for us to move towards each other and the problem in a way that is, is productive? And of course, as we now know, the likelihood that our system is able to be in that kind of collaborative mode or in a fight-flight mode has a lot to do with our past traumas, intergenerational trauma, collective trauma, and so we treat that as well. And it's interesting, actually, a lot of the policymakers and experts that have read our report, that's actually st you know, still quite a new idea for them. And so this, this whole report is a kind of pick a mix of you know, different ideas. And for some, you know, they're completely new concepts. Yeah, this is so synthetic. And it really is integrating a lot of very current and new ideas about minds and bodies and, and how it all works together. So I can imagine that it's, um, I'm, I'm just so appreciative that you're bringing that level of intellect and thinking into you know, the policy space. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, yeah, I hope so. And um, it's, it's really important, actually, I should have emphasized quite how many people have been involved in this. 
like the initial mindfulness uh, developing agency in urgent times and then into reconnection we probably have had our text read and had significant comments from I mean, well over a hundred of the leading experts around the world. So we're sort of standing on the shoulders of giants. And so, yeah, being able to go to true experts in, say, the area of trauma or the area of compassion or whatever, uh, uh, to bring in their expertise has, has been a big part of this story that I should have mentioned up front. And then, you know, speaking of compassion, you know, then we go to sort of, you know, mind, body, heart is the, is the next section. We look at the role of emotional intelligence, empathy in connecting to each other, connecting to ourselves. Uh, and then the kind of, you know, jewel of our evolutionary inheritance or uh, or the kind of the maker's gift, uh, however you see it, uh, compassion and and show how this isn't just a kind of nice to have fluffy thing or a kind of like motherhood and apple pie. Everyone agrees that it's a good thing, but, you know, don't know how to actually do it. Um, this is a crunchy, serious, practical thing that has basically been vital to our survival so far and, and the kind of cohesion of our societies. And we absolutely need to cultivate this right now and not just talk about it. And so, yeah, we lay out the reasons for that in, in the context of the climate crisis and introduce that. And again, many people who are interested in mindfulness training are unaware that there's evidence base for compassion. Many of the people who I find are actually experts in compassion, scientists looking at compassion, don't even really mention that it can be trained. Um, you know, there, there was a famous, very widely read book called Humankind by Rutger Bergman recently whole book about this side of the human condition and human nature and then it, it, there's one sentence like going like some people think maybe it can be trained well I'll tell you what it can be trained i think there's really good good enough evidence and you know not say two and a half thousand years worth of you know contemplative traditions that say it can be and we absolutely should on a much wider basis and anyway so that that's our kind of connection through human history and then i'll mention the second part and perhaps more briefly which is once we're connected how do we stay connected when this is so difficult? And so the first section of our second chapter, we, we call staying with the trouble. And so this is, first of all, that radically new coping mechanism or approach for coping, which is turning towards the difficult, rather than putting everything in a box, which is what a lot of us do with climate change. And at some point, we're going to have to let it out and process it or integrate it. And I know, you know personally, I experienced serious climate grief and repression and it gave me heart pains and it gave me back problems and it stopped me sleeping and I had no idea what I was doing until suddenly I realized and I, and I had, to, had to like hardly did any work for three weeks as it's like the dam burst and I was just completely mm. inundated or like you know overwhelmed by by feeling and then this sort of depression and finally got through to a kind of like post-tragic mindset that I could find joy and uh, you know motivation again yeah so we look at the courage and the resource required to do that and how inner capacities can, can support it. We look at the role of difficult emotions and how regulating and integrating those is, is vital. And we look at positive emotions, you know, joy, hope or optimism and how um, mindfulness and compassion practice and actually how compassion is what they call a transcendent emotion, which uh, expands our identity and our sense of, sense of self. Which neatly actually draws us into the next section, which is about how we don't just sort of see connectedness, but we understand it and feel it. And it really infuses our sense of who we are and, and our sense of the world. So I mentioned before about how the, that vital role of mindset. Are we at the top of a pyramid, disconnected from other things, or are we enmeshed in the harmonic web of life? So we have a section called um, Holistic Worldview. 
and expanded identity. So like I say, compassion and mindfulness seem to allow us to expand our identity to not just see that connection, but feel the connection, actually feel a sense of identity which is larger than, than the kind of traditional narrow self. And to shift that mindset or that worldview to one that, that better holds interdependence. Yeah. Can we pause on that for one moment? Sure. Because uh, when I was looking through the, the report, that section really jumped out to me as like, that's the thing, right? Like to me, that's the goal that will counteract this state of disconnection that you were talking about before. And again, like you were saying, it's a worldview shift, right? Like it's a embodied understanding of interconnection and and that almost naturally leads to compassion, you know, and these things are all interlinked. But um, I feel like if you can come to that state or, or approach that state of a different worldview, that holistic or interconnected worldview, that will then just naturally affect all of the, you know, steps that you take from there, right, which includes policy and, and action and all of these things. So um, I just want to pause on that for a moment. And because, you know, as a scientist, of course, I then immediately think, well, like, how do you measure that? Mm. <laughs> like, how can you measure a change in worldview? Which I do think, you know, we've talked about this a lot at Mind and Life, too. But that's one of the key longer term things that comes out of this contemplative space are these worldview shifts and this expansion of the self and understanding of the reality of interconnection. Um, but I'm just wondering from your perspective, um, in trying to, you know, compile evidence and all these things, what's your sense of being able to get a handle on on that? Is it measurable? Is it tractable? Mm. Like, how do you even know if that's happening? You know, I think people know it in themselves, mm. and they can report it. But beyond that, I don't know, just what, what's been your experience of that space? Well, firstly, I just, I just want to validate your, your insight there, both that this is a kind of a crux of the paper we put together and also a kind of crux of the situation and what we can do about it. But when I send this report to people and I think they might not read the whole thing, I often recommend a chapter that's most appropriate to their work and then say, just make sure you read the holistic worldview and expanded identities section because that I think is the nub of it. Great. And also this is what sustainability scientists call a deep leverage point for change. So a shallow leverage point might be I don't know, recycling more, recycling education or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. easy to access. We can send out some brochures or do a television advert or something like um, easy to access, but minimal impact. Deep leverage point for change, much harder to access. But once you do, there's a cascade effect on everything. Like our world is, is an emergent phenomena based on some fundamental ways of looking. And, and, and that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. And yeah, how do you measure that? I mean, um, there are there are ways, there are questionnaires that look sort of like a independent versus interconnected self-construal, I think, might be some of the language. And I think there needs to be, yeah, I'd I love to inspire researchers out there through this conversation to go ahead and look at that more directly. What we look at are reasons to believe that both mindfulness and compassion might help that shift. But what we also emphasize is that it probably needs to be in combination with direct inquiry into what our ways of looking are, what our mindsets are, what our worldviews are, etc. And so it won't be enough. There's some evidence to suggest that if you if you come with an independent self-construal and you practice mindfulness, 
it re you know it reinforces that and vice versa if you have a kind of interconnected one then that becomes stronger so one of our themes through this report actually is the new innovative movement towards social mindfulness mm -hmm. which is to say mindfulness training helps us to inquire into patterns of distress and well-being and flourishing in our own lives and where they might come from what might be causing them but the scope of that tends to be limited to things we can control you know having longer lunch breaks or having better relationships with your whoever or responding not reacting to stresses but actually we need to broaden the scope of this inquiry to sources of distress and well-being at a group and societal level and the kind of you know structures and, and systems potentially it's a fraught territory because as soon as you do that ideology can creep in and then people can really reject it and go like don't come here with your brainwashing and telling me that i need to think about things in a certain way etc so how do you, how do we make it an inquiry and one that's palatable for a broad mainstream audience we don't make it exclusive at the same time as broadening that lens to ask some to inquire directly into this worldview um, issue but we, we do offer some reasons to, to, to believe, even though we hope that there'll be much more researchers on this in the future. And one of the things that we have a whole um, box on is the association of mindfulness with the holistic, intuitive mode of mind. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because that jumped out at me too. And I wanted to, to ask you about it. So oh, great. yeah, please, please unpack that. Thank you. So this is the model from cognitive scientists, particularly, I like the work of John Teasdale. Um, whose new book on interactive cognitive subsystems of mindfulness like really majors on this and takes it to a whole new level of understanding. And associating mindfulness, yeah, with holistic intuitive, which is sort of, which some people like Ian McGilchrist, the, the kind of uh, popular writer, associate with the, with the right hemisphere, which is sort of like parallel processing, wisdom, slow intuitive, like seeing the woods from the trees, big picture stuff. And then on the left hemisphere, if you, if you go with McGill Chris, which many don't, admittedly, then it's kind of serial processing, logical, rational, verbal, conceptual, um, which is great at breaking the world into small parts, manipulating them in a kind of way that they have sort of linear relationships or a small number of relationships that you can fit into your head and with your working memory and sort of like figure out. Not so good when you have thousands, maybe millions of inputs and you need a kind of fuzzy logic in terms of a computer science term of, of a kind of like parallel processing thing. And so, for instance, our holistic intuitive tends to be upregulated in, in nature, whereas if we look at human-made objects, it, the verbal conceptual gets stimulated. And this, this fragmentation, siloing, disconnection that we're saying is, is part and parcel of the problematic worldview, is part and parcel of the verbal conceptual mode of mind. And the two go hand in hand. And that both nature connection and mindfulness are likely to help us to see interdependence, shift to a, a, a worldview that, that, that handles it. Because of it, it's, um, it's a movement to that holistic, intuitive mode of mind. Yeah, Yeah. when I read that section of the report, I, I wasn't familiar with that term, holistic, intuitive, but it reminds me of a dichotomy that many people have made, right, about different modes of operating, right, this mm. kind of open, receptive mode versus this, like, conceptual thinking mode, and... Um, I don't know that I'm a big fan of localizing those into hemispheres of the brain, but certainly, you know, we have these different ways of operating. And it struck me a little bit, and I'm just curious um, with your experience in, in Buddhism as well, it struck me that that holistic intuitive felt like a non-dual kind of 
space. Like if it is meant to be mm. a non-conceptual way of engaging with the world, do you think that that's a parallel that makes sense or mm. is that too far? I do. I do. And I've thrown a couple of other slightly, slightly controversial things. You know, I, I do buy the Gilchrist's hemispheric thing, which isn't to say, it isn't, it isn't true to say either hemisphere does any one thing on its own. Right. It's, so the question isn't what does it do, it's how does it do it. Mm. So both hemispheres sort of do everything, but each, each does it differently and, adds, and therefore adds a different sort of quality to our conscious experience. Yeah. Okay, that's a helpful distinction. And there's a, one of the most popular TED Talks is of uh, the neuroscientist, I forget her name, who has a stroke in her left hemisphere. And she describes basically this non-dual experience of, of just like, you know, perfect oneness with, you know, everything. And, and, yes. And that and a huge amount of other um, case studies and bits of evidence that McGilgris puts in his books, The Master and His Emissary and The Matter with Things. So, yeah, I, I, I would say I would say yes. And the other thing which is starting to come into our thinking is, is realizing how Newtonian physics has shaped our understanding of the world, of ourselves, of social change, how we see things. And quantum physics is offering a new model, a, a new analogy for understanding ourselves. And it's like one mode does nouns and the other mode does verbs. One mode does Newtonian. There are discrete entities that have their inherent existence and suchness and a discrete number of relationships with each other in a causal way that we think we can figure out logically. And the other one does a kind of quantum field of just knowing in a pattern of relationships. Yeah, exactly. Like one mode separates things and one mode yes. integrates things or sees the sees things as connected. Exactly. And crucially, McGilchrist suggests that one evolved as a primary function. And, and that's the, where the, the master and his emissary comes in. The master should be the holistic intuitive, which brings in the verbal conceptual when we've got a problem to solve. When needed. When needed. Yes. But we've created a world with the verbal conceptual that then has a feedback loop, which means that the verbal conceptual goes nuts because it stim gets stimulated by everything. That's all it does. In, in, in our, yes, exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I like that. Because you do need, you know, there's value in both and you need both to be able to mm. navigate the world. I'm reminded of um, a conversation I had with Sharon Salzberg on the podcast a little bit ago. Uh, she was talking about a tree and in one way you can see a tree as like a distinct separate entity mm. And in another way, you can see all the interconnections under the earth and the, the air, you know, exactly. and the fact that both of those are true in different ways. Yes. And so yes. we need to be able to work with both of those. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I, I have a little provocation for any researchers listening who are want, wanting a project. Please. The, you may well be familiar with the kind of very influential Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Uh, book and, and sort of research around behavioral uh, economics. Yeah. And so they have, they have the system one, system two. Thinking fast is sort of derided as being that's your intuitive. And then system two is the slow, um, which is the more verbal, conceptual, deliberative, logical, etc. Where, where does this holistic intuitive fit in, in that model? Because I would suggest that it's not thinking fast and thinking slow. It's thinking fast, thinking slow, and thinking even slower. Because the kind of processing that actually you can't do in an afternoon, actually you need to sleep on it. Actually you need to do it for a week or a month and just let it kind of marinate and gestate within your kind of wisdom, intuitive sense until finally some, this answer just plops out. Having been synthesizing all of these millions of you know, inputs and data points, it suddenly goes, oh no, I need to, I don't know, 
leave this relationship or get a new job or, or, or like make this decision or this purchase or whatever. And I think you need to draw in the verbal conceptual to help you with that process, do some logical analysis and, you know, some, some charts or, or, or whatever. But essentially, our big life decisions largely get made by that thinking even slower. And that isn't really on the map of the thinking fast thinking. It's Kahneman, right? Yes. Daniel Kahneman, yeah. Uh, I definitely think someone should research that, basically. That's, that, that's the holistic intuitive in action. And I think we need to have more faith in that whilst also being aware of our biases and knowing how to mitigate those and, and make sure that they aren't what's you know, shaping our thinking. I've taken us on this tangent and I think you were um, about to wrap up the, the last Let's section of the that. report. Did you want to come yeah, back to that? So I, I can gloss the rest because having got a felt sense of connection, there are things which might get in the way. So polarization. So we treat political polarization and the emerging evidence that mindfulness reduces affective polarization. So this is the work of Otto Simonson, particularly where we tend to dislike or distrust those who think differently from us. And mindfulness seems to reduce that that tendency. And so these are ways ways in which we can yes, stop the increasing disconnection and fragmentation in our political landscape. We look at the particular importance of nature connection. Those who are connected to nature are twice as likely to exhibit sustainable behaviours. And nature helps people to be mindful. Mindfulness helps people to actually be in nature rather than Instagramming it or, or like thinking about their to-do list. And, and so there's huge potential for mindfulness courses in nature, nature connection courses that are mindfulness informed and compassion informed. And so that's the end of that section. And we wrap it up often where people start talking about mindfulness. And that is how it helps us to interrupt autopilot, to, to respond, not react, to act more in line with our intentions, to act more of the time on purpose. And that has we think, huge implications for what sustainability scientists call the values action gap. So there is an important gap between what we know and what we think, what we think and what we do. And because fundamentally mindfulness is about bringing awareness and regulation of, of, of the mind and, and behavior as something important to say here. And compassion also can help us to act collectively, um, to feel that inspiration to act um, and to act together on our sh shared issues. And, I, and as, as I mentioned before, also is an important uh, function of the inner compass and, and how that um, could help close this gap. Because as I think I said, politicians often describe this. Mindfulness helps me in the, in the maelstrom of politics to be clear on, on what's important and to act in line with that more of the time. Yeah, and and we we end up by making recommendations for for change for, for policymakers for um, for leadership development in business for a range of, of of sectors. Some of these, admittedly, are stretch goals. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> like we should have uh, a government department or unit that that looks at the inner development of citizens more broadly um, as important to societal flourishing, like the inward form of citizens you know, no more so than in our, in our sustainability responses. So um, 
So yeah, that's my job for the next, oh, wow. well, however many years, basically. Like it, yeah. It's only a tiny bit of the work is actually researching and writing this report. Now it's telling people about it and, and particularly telling, hopefully, you know, people in power. Yes, that was going to be my, my next question is what are the next steps now that, um, I mean, firstly, I'll just say this report is just such a comprehensive and synthetic piece of work. And so deep gratitude to you and all all of those who've been contributing to it. I know you said it's been a kind of a five-year journey and and it shows because it's really, it's quite a tour de force. So thank you for doing that. And I hope that it has great impact. So yeah, what happens now? Well, thankfully there are some nascent programs and initiatives that are the kind of natural implication or conclusion of what we're proposing here that like things are already being done in other words so we have a case study in the report of the european commission which is part of you know the european parliament uh, european government they have a climate leaders program called the inner green deal where they have senior civil servants doing a mindfulness and compassion informed climate leadership program and uh, uh, and, and there are many innovators uh, in this space um, who should be supported using public resources to develop what they're doing to, 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 to research it and to make make it scalable I think, I think in the in the short term leadership training is something that we can get get going with right now and there are many many good examples as well as the you know, inner green deal you know we'd, we'd love to for instance see sustainability education a right of every child uh, in school but you can't just tell kids about the state of things without also providing some resource to be able to deal with that information and to act on it. Now, ultimately, the thing that's going to make a difference to them is action, to feeling like they're adults, they're, you know, they're, their leaders are actually doing something. But in addition to that, you know, we, there's a lot we can do to support young people where, you know, I think it's 87% are very worried and extremely worried. Mm. And half of those almost, that's just having a negative you know, influence on their daily life. Mm. Uh, and so that's just a, you know just a couple of examples, but you know this has until quite recently been a completely missing piece the the, the the inner. So first and foremost, just include it in your thinking, you know. Just yeah. How <laughs> is it landing for politicians, especially like a lot of the you know the pieces that we talked about, as you said, are, are very deep, fundamental, sometimes could be considered esoteric ideas, mm. um, cognitive science things, and so. How is it landing when you discuss it with politicians or those in power? Are they getting it, I guess? Yeah. You know, God, through our interviews, we just realize it's so different the way people see this problem. On the one hand, you have Cristiana Figueres, the former general secretary of, you know, the UNFCCC, you know, the UN body you know, trying to address this mess, and the you know, chief architect of the Paris Agreement. And, you know, she says... There will be many changes we need to make in our lives and in our countries, and they'll be different wherever we are. They'll all start in one place in, in our mindset. She gets it. She practices mindfulness. Mm -hmm. That's probably part of why she yeah. gets it so much. She's amazing, yeah. Really amazing. So on, on one hand, you know, you have someone like that. On the other hand, you have such, you know, it, it's, it's, it's staggering, actually, how little awareness people have of psychology, of, 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 of sort of like, you know, how culture works, sort of like... That would be my guess, yeah. And so you're just starting from an extremely low base. So how has it landed? I mean, you know, we have um, another visionary politician in the UK who is probably the, the most well-known uh, environmental campaigner in a political sense, um, 
Caroline Lucas. You know, she said the report was brilliant and wonderfully important and has helped her to understand why we haven't acted. So even someone who has made it her life goal, basically, to, to, work, to work on this stuff, still finds this sort of like, you know, revelatory in terms of like the inner dimension and why we haven't acted, you know. Um, and so there is a need to get some of this research out of climate psychology and into the, the, the minds and hands of, of policymakers. And this is just the first step. So do get in touch if you're working on this or want to, because, you know, we're, we're hoping to pull together a list of resources, projects in this area, uh, signpost people to colleagues that they could work with, etc. And, you know, we, we hope that a halo effect of this work is a kind of the field of inner outer sustainability work becoming aware of itself and, and working in a more joined up way. Yeah. Well, wow. Thank you so much. This has been a really fantastic conversation. Um, our time has just completely flown by. Mm. Really grateful to you. And of course, we'll be linking to all of the resources um, from your organization on our the show notes for this and definitely encourage people to check out this report and, and share it. Um, I can't really think of anything more important in this moment that we're facing to facilitate this mindset shift, I think, mm. is is what we all need to be doing. So really deep bows of gratitude. And um, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to chat with us. Thank you so much, Wendy. It's been, it's been a pleasure and, and a deep bow of respect to the uh, Mind and Life Institute. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to, to ways in which we can, we can all work together on this neglected area. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>